Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. And welcome to the Partly Poltergeist Broadcast, the comedy politics podcast that for Halloween really won't change much as how on earth could things be any more unsettling in politics. This is episode 162, I'm Tiernan Duyeb, I mean, um, Fiernan Booyeb, and I wonder if it's possible for a zombie parliament to survive if there's no brains to be found anywhere in the vicinity. Prime Minister, and like if someone tried to carve a pumpkin using a spoon, Boris Johnson, has had to accept the EU's extended Brexit deadline, has lost a vote to have a general election, and while previous instalments of the Conservative horror franchise have had the lead slashing more than Jason, 2019 shite night is more of a psychological torture, where the main idiot is charged into unknown territory, gets held hostage and is too weak to escape. It's a lot less popular than the earlier ones, but mostly because it's repetitive, boring and full of plot holes, especially when viewers were promised an evocative death in a ditch. Johnson, of course, insists that he won't allow the paralysis of Parliament, but rather than that being heroic, it's just more typical Conservatives trying to force something to be fit for work when it clearly isn't. Yes, there have been several days of Brexit limbo, something that was obviously going to happen when the government had set the bar so, so low. But the EU have offered an extension, meaning that the UK's withdrawal agreement, if there is one, doesn't kick in until January the 31st. So all of February could now be pancake day as we have to ransack our cupboards for anything still edible as all the stockpiled food from last March has now gone off. This is failed Brexit day number three, and while you might celebrate on Thursday by eating some fresh vegetables or swearing at a Weatherspoons, the government have now promised and not delivered Brexit three times, which, if it were a parcel, would mean it'd get returned to sender. Like all good curses, the only way that this can be lifted is if a lesson is learned, which is not something Johnson or his government have experience of doing, even when privately paid for. Or it's passed on to someone else, but with Parliament blocking a general election, the latter seems unlikely, and so I guess we'll just have to wait until a large hellmouth opens up and drags the Prime Minister in instead. So where exactly are we with all of this? Well, that's a good question, and if Parliament went to see the creepy old lady at the fair for a tarot reading, she'd likely just hand over cards from a board game, telling them all to return to the beginning and start again. The government passed their withdrawal agreement bill to the second reading last week, which, if you'd seen the bollocks that was in it, is much less of a victory and more a mean trick, making them have to read through it again in front of class and then get it passed around so everyone can have a go at punching it. Of course, Johnson's crew didn't actually realise this, as they've passed so few things recently that they don't understand what a successful bill looks like. If they'd never seen an elephant before, they'd be so desperate to tell people they had instead of looking stupid, they'd swear that the dog they saw with its head stuck in some trousers was definitely a real-life Dumbo. So it's understandable that the government spent the days afterwards saying they had a parliamentary victory, because you'll take what you can, right? But in fact, the timetable for delivering the bill was voted against immediately afterwards, so it's only a win for their withdrawal agreement if they're OK with everyone taking a closer look at it on their time and changing it completely. 
And that's worrying, considering even the government didn't seem to know what was in it. Johnson kept saying with his bill that there'd be no checks between Northern Ireland and Britain, except that there definitely would be. When he was asked why he keeps getting it wrong, his spokesperson said they aren't checks, just minimal administrative processes. Sure, and when they look at your passport, that's not border control, is it? It's just putting a name to a face. That's a nice bill. Mind if I have a closer look? Turns out no, and the government stopped all scrutiny of their Brexit baby and instead made everyone look at the Queen's speech, which got passed, because you may as well let someone have their ludicrous plans for visiting Disney World if you know they'll likely die before they get a chance to go. It was very much the Make-A-Wish foundation of votes, and I only hope this whole saga ends by someone dressed as Darth Vader coming to meet Boris at number 10 and demanding he give him a high five before he's made to leave. After the Queen's speech vote, Johnson got all upset, even though he'd won that one, probably because it's like hitting the jackpot on a one-armed bandit that only dispenses passing thoughts, and he declared that the government would be putting forward a vote on a general election. And if it was blocked, they would go on strike, which is the most redundant threat ever do it. Let's see how we all fare when a government that doesn't do anything and can't pass anything stops doing anything as some sort of punishment. Still, I think watching the Conservatives try and unionise would be a lot of fun, and even more so seeing Labour cross the picket lines to go to work could get really confusing. Meanwhile, the EU is still discussing whether to give the UK an Article 50 extension, or if they should just respond with, new phone, who dis, and hopefully never have to hear from us again. But remember when President of the European Council and Leprechaun from the film Leprechaun, Donald Tusk, said the UK mustn't waste time and then we pissed about getting a new Prime Minister who prorogued Parliament unlawfully and then tried to pass a bill that no one liked all over again? The EU sensibly decided this time they should wait to see what length of extension they give us in case we were actually having an election. Meanwhile, the UK was waiting to see if they'd have an election based on the length of the extension that the EU gave us. It was one big Ouroboros with little clue as to which was the head or Send, but an understanding that this might be why everyone is being snaky and full of shit. The EU budged first, and so I guess this must mean that the government's expensive Get Ready for Brexit adverts were actually just part one of many, with Get Set for Brexit to come some point next year, probably followed by, sorry, false start back to positions in February, and then an apology for delays due to the weather in June, followed by some sort of mumbling about how leaves on the line. This is a so-called flextension, which sounds like what happens when someone boasts about going to the gym at an inappropriate moment. But it means we could leave before January 31st if the withdrawal agreement is passed. And that now means the Conservatives want an election on December the 12th. Which opens up all sorts of opportunities for a festive voting session. I mean, how about an advent calendar leading up to it, where door number 10 is a picture of special advisor and pinhead who can't even successfully arrange for the pins to be delivered, Dominic Cummings, where he tells you he has no idea who you are, and then every other door promises they'll contain something but are actually all empty. What about on voting day, all the tiny pencils have small amounts of tinsel on, the ballot papers have snow and mistletoe, with each box a small present, and volunteers shout, You voted! Like Slade. It might not happen like that, though, as Labour don't want an election on December the 12th, as leader Jeremy Corbyn in the woods isn't keen on that date due to issues with students voting, and it being cold and dark, and oh, what if it rains, and what if it snows, and won't everyone be too busy pre-ordering turkeys to vote for one? There were some concerns that school nativity plays would have to be moved, but based on most parents I know, they'd rather be trying to boot this government out than watch a ton of kids being shit at acting, just so they can see their child suck at being a sheep for 30 seconds. Meanwhile, the Lib Dems and the SNP want to bring a bill for an election, but on December the 9th instead of the 12th, as that'd leave no time to debate the withdrawal agreement beforehand, and it's on a Monday, so they're just really keen to ruin this podcast again. It makes sense that the Lib Dems are keen on an election, as post-Brexit, their manifesto will just be filled with shrug emojis. Plus, it might give them a chance to get rid of House of Wax extra Chukaramuna without having to be rude about it. So the government are now saying they'll bring a bill that's identical to the Lib Dems and SNP one, except for it being on a different date, which makes it not really identical. It's like playing spot the difference between a tree and Boris Johnson when they're completely different things. I mean, sure, they're both clearly barking, but only one shows definite promise of leaving. Their Operation Yellowhammer project for no-deal preparation has been cancelled, so that's only £2 billion completely gone to waste. While the production of 50p Brexit coins has also been postponed, which is a shame as now what are we going to use for tiny ninja stars that render the enemy useless through hysterical mocking laughter? Plus, there's £100 million the government spent on the Get Ready for Brexit campaign that's now had to be paused due to all those false starts. 
It's such a shame that that bus didn't say, we give £350 million a week to the EU, let's fund some shit PR stunts instead. Which I think in a way would have been the most self-aware campaign ever. So that's where we are everyone, the Conservatives not wanting an election, then wanting one but not being allowed one, Labour wanting one, then not wanting one, Lib Dems wanting one for a specific date or not at all, SNP the same, and all the while Brexit gears up for February because why not go all out for Lent and have a whole country that just gives up? I suppose it's called a snap election because whatever happens, half the population will feel like they've disappeared. Despite all this, the Conservatives are still ahead in all of the polls, and I can only conclude that by Boris Johnson consistently failing but having a delusional optimism that he's still capable of winning, he's finally displaying ultimate British values. And that's more frightening than any of your Halloween nonsense. In other news, US President and the Baba crook Donald Trump tweeted, Something very big has happened. And while you'd be forgiven for assuming that he'd learned to put his own jacket on, he actually meant that the US Special Forces raid on the Syrian compound of ISIS leader and funeral Santa Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi had been successful, saying that they'd both killed him, but also that al-Baghdadi had detonated his suicide vest and killed himself. So I'm not sure how that counts as a hit for the US military unless they surrounded him and played in various recordings of Trump's speeches till he couldn't take it anymore and blew himself up. Trump said during a press conference that the ISIS leader has spent his last few moments in fear, whimpering, crying and screaming all the way. But it turns out that the footage he'd have had to witness was just overhead filming with no audio and that actually he was golfing during the raid itself, so it may be those were just the noises Trump made as they tried to interrupt his game to tell him what had happened. This has now left ISIS without effective leadership, which may well work against Trump as it could cause Americans to empathise with the terrorist group and feel like they have something in common. The US president has threatened that if the UK don't repatriate ISIS detainees currently held in Syrian camps, that the US will just drop them on the UK so our government can, as he said, have fun capturing them again. Well, more fool him, as what if Chucky could barely attack a beanbag, Marc Francois will no doubt be using all his spare time, thanks to a delayed Brexit, to be wandering up and down the coastline with a pan on his head and a stick that he's found that looks like a gun, so I'm sure we'll all be fine. And lastly, Labour MP and wannabe part of the human centipede, but only if he can sell the other two a washing machine, Keith Vaz, is facing a six-month suspension from the Commons after expressing a willingness to buy cocaine for male prostitutes. Typical Labour MP, wanting to make sure anaesthetics are available to all and supporting sex workers. If Vaz was clever, though, he'd call up Michael Gove to see what line he'd take. Former Scottish Conservative leader and Annie Wilkes tribute act Ruth Davidson has taken a paid job with a lobbying PR firm Tulchin Communications. I mean, of course they'd want her. Davidson's PR skills almost made the Scottish Conservatives not seem like a total joke. Almost. Davidson is urging MSPs who think she's breached parliamentary rules by taking a job while still an MSP herself to refer her to the Standards Commissioner. But we all know she's got standards or she wouldn't have stood down when Johnson became PM. It's concerning that she can earn an extra £50,000 on top of her usual salary promoting communications while using up time and ignoring her constituents. Then again, maybe what she wants to communicate is that she couldn't give a shit, so she's perhaps more of a traditional Scottish Conservative than she thinks. Greetings, Parpol Broads, and a splendid Samhain to you, if you care about that sort of thing. Uh, my favourite thing to do on Halloween is wait till trick-or-treating kids come to the door and then shout out of the window, actually, you'll find that older generations have tricked you all, and ultimately there's little point in dressing as monsters when the true monsters are those who are accelerating climate change for profit. And then I'll lob a tangerine in one of their eyes and hide until they go away. <laughs> of course, I don't actually do that. Um, what I do is turn off all the lights in our flat and hope no one comes around at all as the doorbell will wake up our daughter. And she's now even more in need of sleep as the clock's going back means she's up at 4am. <laughs> oh, God, I'll tell you what's scary. It's how dead I am inside. Is it OK to trick or treat just for coffees at sort of, I don't know, 11 in the morning? Um, actually, uh, what is genuinely scary is how every week Parliament have decided to have a really big vote on a Monday night. So I think I finished the podcast early and then have to sit around for hours only for them to vote the way I think they're going to, just in case they are predictable. And then you get this all rushed through with garbled slurry me having scoffed a quick dinner before spitting it out over the microphone and into your ears. Ah! 
I'm sorry, but it's their fault. Them MPs who refuse to plan absolutely everything around my specific needs instead of the country's assholes. Um, but yes, apologies for last week's show, which I managed to record incorrectly and then had to re-record really late. And I think ended up with all the music being too loud and my voice extra tired. And it probably sounded a bit like you were being cornered by a boar in a nightclub. I am sorry. Hopefully, this week is all back to normal. Or, because it's Halloween, paranormal. Ah! <laughs> Yeah, just trying to slam those Halloween gags home on the one week that I'm allowed to do them. It's what's needed, isn't it? I mean, there's so many good gag opportunities missed at the moment. The Mail on Sunday did a big piece about Jeremy Corbyn uh, falling asleep on a train, which was a usual sort of non-story nonsense from them. But I was totally gutted that they didn't give it the headline, Jeremy Snorbin. I mean, why would you waste that? How can you be imaginative enough to come up with a story when there isn't one and yet run out of steam before the headline? Bleak. Weird. Anyway, thanks for listening in, whether you're using your own ears or one of the variety you keep in the fridge for snacks, or maybe this is being emitted through the possessed child you keep in the attic. Um, Either way, very grateful for your time sacrifice. And should you enjoy the show, why not give it a little review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podbean, any of those pod apps, or even just on your own gravestone. Maybe a quick RIP followed by the pod link. And if you can donate either a few pounds or an organ to the ko-fi.com forward slash parpolbro site or the Patreon com forward slash bro all links in the pod blurb then it is always appreciated as I currently need enough caffeine to raise the dead mainly me if you can't do any of that because your fingers have left your hand to become their own creepy entities and you only have an account in a blood bank then please do spread the word about this show perhaps like the ring where if people don't pass this on they'll have to bear the curse by themselves and then who can they talk to about my sick politician descriptions every single week yeah uh, admin or maybe for Halloween Badmin? No, that just sounds like half a sport. Um, admin. No, I'll, I'll leave it. Um, admin, uh, you may or may not have noticed that I didn't plug the live gig on the 29th um, of October, which should be tomorrow or the day when you hear this or several days ago, depending on just whenever you do it. Um, and that's because I've sadly had to cancel it. And I'd love to pretend it's because of the ever-changing nature of Brexit or because I've got some big telly show. But sadly, it's because uh, it seemed no one wanted to come. No one booked any tickets. And I completely misjudged the notion that any of you might have wanted to pay to hear yet more crap about Brexit. Um, clearly not. And to be honest, I don't blame you. Um, I'll have a think about a better time and place to do a live show in the future and try and work something out. Sorry if you're one of a handful of people planning to come. But much like politics right now, if you don't rally enough support, it just doesn't happen. Uh, in other things, the kids' politics show I do with Tatton at Simple Politics, a.k.a. How Does This Politics Thing Work Then? Um, that's at Dorchester Arts this Saturday, November the 2nd, then Chew Valley Arts um, next Saturday, November the 9th, and then the Wardrobe Theatre Bristol on November the 10th. Please do come along. And also, I'm going to be supporting Frankie Boyle yet again at the Soho Theatre throughout December. Um, tickets aren't on sale yet, but do keep checking the Soho Theatre website to grab some when they do. On this week's Spooktacular podcast... Uh, yeah, I'm doing it again, aren't I? Um, I'm speaking to Benita Matovska all about the scaring economy. Sorry, I mean the sharing economy. It's actually not spooky at all. It's just rather lovely. Um, plus, who and how will be the next Freaker of the Commonsters? Sorry, I mean Speaker of the Commons. Oh, this season's so tedious, isn't it? Darkness falls across the land. The midnight hour isn't that close at hand. Suddenly you hear a chilling whine and realise you're watching Question Time. Stupid sound bites from a neighbourhood. The audience are just out for blood, but you're trapped within its icy grip, hoping that they as Fiona Bruce smiles with glee and you grab your phone to tweet sarcastically, you realise that you've been bit by the trap that is this weekly shit. And now devoid of fact or sense, you realise you have no defence against the antagonising chime. Now you're trapped within the question time. As it's a Halloween special, I thought this week I'd focus on something truly scary. Sharing. 
Yes, the most terrifying concept when it comes to that bag of chips you're about to enjoy. Or if you're J.K. Simmons' most arsehole character and billionaire Jeff Bezos when it comes to, well, anything. Of course, to you and I, when not eating chips, sharing is an important part of being a human being, and one of those things you learn about as a kid. You know how to share, how not to hog things all for yourself, how nice it is to let someone else play with your toys sometimes, sit on a chair with you, and join in taking turns attacking your younger sibling with that stick that you found. But as adults, that message becomes less prevalent in our lives, with the majority of times you hear the term shares being during the financial section of the news, and instead an insistence that a meritocracy is the way forward, even though the people that seem to do best from it are those that already have money and privilege, which feels a bit like encouraging everyone to compete in a race for a trophy, while you're the one who gets to start at the finishing line. This is where the sharing economy comes in. Collaborative consumption, a way to distribute or offer services to other people because, well, you're nice like that and it's a lovely thing to do. There is the monetary version of this, uh, which allows you to drive people places in your car, uh, which with my mucky car and terrible driving would be less caring and more sort of them paying for a punishment. Or you could rent your home to them for money, which again, for me, would mean charging uh, for people to live in a home that has crayon on all of the tables and old banana expertly smashed into the wall. But there is a vast not-for-profit element to the sharing economy too, where you can offer your time, help, company, or perhaps even chip protection to those who need it. The internet and apps have facilitated this with sites like, for example, FreeCycle, meaning furniture is recycled to people who need it rather than turned into pointless waste, showing that by sharing, you're helping environmentally, economically, and you'll feel all warm inside because you've done something nice. Yes, even warmer than if you'd eaten all your chips by yourself. With the country still so very divided, I thought it'd be nice this week to speak to Benita Matowska, a.k.a. the chief sharer, international speaker, global sharing economy expert, changemaker and author of Generation Share, a collection of stories about people who've built the sharing economy all around the world. Benita explained to me exactly what a sharing economy is, why companies such as Uber and Airbnb aren't exactly what you should have in mind when it comes to sharing properly, and all about the Generation Share book. OK, maybe you can have a chip. Here's Benita. <laughs> I am very chuffed to have the chief sharer with me uh, on this podcast. Um, I thought a, a good thing, well, for myself and for the listeners, is if you could just explain what a sharing economy is. What does it involve? Uh, what examples are there of sharing economies out there? Oh, I always love this question, being the chief sharer. So a sharing economy, very simply, is a system to live by. It's where we care for people and planet. And we share available resources in any way that we can. So, you know, we have examples of of food sharing. There are organisations like Fair Share. And what they do is they divert food that would otherwise go to landfill to people living in food poverty. But you also have, you've got websites like Borrow My Doggy, where you can share someone's dog. Um, You can share, for example, uh, you can share cars. We've heard a lot about car sharing, bike sharing. Pretty much now, you can access any resource that you like. You don't necessarily own it, but you have access to it when you need it. And that's what this is really about. It's about building a sustainable economy that puts people and planet at the center, but also is very much about thinking about the fact that we've got finite resources. We hear a lot about climate change. We've got a limit on the planetary resources we have, but our potential to share is unlimited. So I believe if we can unleash that, there's no end to what we can achieve. And, and obviously there's a very sort of environmental side to that, which is hugely important, but there must also be a, um, a kind of societal side to that. It must Something positive must come from people sharing things, you know, especially in this age where, where people don't have a lot of money and we've had years of austerity. Is there, is there a whole kind of positive side that comes from, you know, letting other people have access to things that they wouldn't have had otherwise? Well, absolutely. We um, produced or I produced an impact report which basically looked at all of the social impacts that the sharing economy has on people's lives. So we look at, for example, in the UK alone, um, there are 650 million meals worth of food that go to landfill every year. And that's more than enough to feed every single person who's hungry in the UK three times over. We also have enough housing to house the global population 10 times over. So when we start to look at what we can achieve through sharing, we can solve the world's biggest problems. We have the resources, we have the surplus resources, but what we need to be doing is sharing. So there's no doubt that sharing has a very big impact on poverty, for example, also climate change, 
or you know, resource use, resource efficiency. But also there's something that I'm really interested in, which is also mental health and well-being and community. And now there's some science to back up the fact that people who are more isolated are more likely to be in chronic pain. There was a, a piece of research that was done by the Compassionate Frome Project. And what they did was they introduced sharing projects, things like community meals, buddy systems, to elderly people who were living in very isolated situations. And what they found astoundingly was that the number of people, elderly people presenting at emergency rooms was reduced by about 60%. Now that's because, because actually there's a, there's a relationship between chronic pain and isolation and loneliness. So when you start to increase social bonds, you know, you have somebody that has someone to communicate with, they have someone to talk to, they've got something to live for. And actually, that has a really positive impact on mental health. So, you know, someone actually, when I interviewed them, said to me, Benita, you know, sharing isn't a fluffy thing. And it isn't a fluffy thing. You know, we sort of think about, oh, sharing, that's all very nice. But actually, sharing is something that is really positive and has an incredible social impact. It's actually saving millions of lives around the world. Just to give you one really specific example, um, for my book, Generation Share, um, I've interviewed really extraordinary change maker called Dr. Natalie Schenker, and she has the Heart's Milk Bank. And the Heart's Milk Bank is basically a breast milk bank. It's saving the lives of premature and sick babies through the sharing of human milk. Now, we might not think about sharing human milk, but you know it's estimated that 1.2 million babies globally have been saved through the sharing of human milk. So it just starts to give you some idea of the positive impact of sharing and the sharing economy. And that's really interesting because also the sharing of human milk used to happen many years ago and it's become sort of, for example, in that case, like taboo um, or even monetized. And is, is what sort of barriers are there to the, you know, to everyone just sharing things a bit more? Well, the biggest barrier, of course, is trust. And that's very much because because first you trust and then you share and you're not going to be sharing with someone unless you feel that sense of trust. And that's really important. I believe there's never been a better time to trust, actually, because we have so much technology now. We can find out far more information about anybody than we ever could before. So we have information and research on our side. We've got the tools. We can verify that people are who they say they are. There's all sorts of clever tech um, that can be used to, to verify these things. But, you know, we know that that trust is a barrier. And also one of the motivators, interestingly, to sharing is actually money. And, and that's not just about self-interest, but what we know, and wherever this research has been carried out in the world, we have the same results the world over, that the reason that people in the first instance might use one of these sharing platforms is because there's, there's, there's a financial motivation. Either they're going to save money, that could be for their family, that could be to, in order to be able to feed their children, it could be um, that, that they want to, they need to save money. It could be that actually it just means they've got extra additional income, additional revenue. But the reason that people repeat use and go back and use these platforms again is because of the experience and because what they're getting is they're connecting with other people. And they're also able to, you know, through sharing resources, you're lowering carbon, it's much more sustainable, you're having a more positive impact on the planet. But there's this human connection. And fundamentally, to share is to be human. That's really interesting. One of the things when I was Googling sharing uh, economy um, was that it immediately brings up companies such as Uber and Airbnb and things like that. But that is, uh, you know, obviously there's the monetary aspect there, but surely like a, a taxi company like Uber, that's, that's still pollutive. Um, but does that still count then as part of the kind of sharing economy that you envision um you know because there are issues with uber as well as with workers rights and things like that so does that actually count or is that something different well it's it's a really interesting question and and the reality is is that we've been presented through the media with a very narrow perspective of what the sharing economy is so the focus has been on uber it's been on airbnb it's been on these you know silicon valley backed ventures and actually that's not really what the sharing economy is all about sharing economy is simply about people sharing what they have available to them in any way that they can and building a more caring sharing economy, build, putting people and planet at the heart 
That's really what it's about. But the, what we've been presented with is this very narrow focus. Now, whether you know the Uber or Airbnb are part of the sharing economy, I see it as a very, very broad umbrella term. So in terms of what the sharing economy is, if we should we get technical? Do you want to get a bit yes, technical? Yes, please do. Yes, definitely, so, definitely. Essentially, there are five parts to the sharing economy. So first of all, we've got the categories. So that's what we share. Those That could be tangible things like homes and goods and food and transport. But it could also be skills and time and power and knowledge and responsibility. And then we've got the subsets of the sharing economy. So that demonstrates this broad spectrum. So you have cooperatives, crowdsourcing, social enterprise, volunteering, fair trade, vintage clothing. These are all subsets of the sharing economy. And then you've got the mode, which is how we share. So how the, how the sharing happens in practice. So borrowing, swapping, exchanging, renting, repairing, recycling, collaborating, co-creating, co-working, peer-to-peer, person-to-person. Then you've got the characteristics and values of the sharing economy. These are like the qualities. So it's sustainable, it's transparent, it's inclusive, it's positive, it's circular, it's fair, and it's compassionate. And then finally, you've got the impact, the social impact. This is why we share. So, you know, this is about poverty reduction, social mobility, environmental protection, equality, community, and of course, well-being. So those make up the five categories of the sharing economy, these five different aspects. So it is really broad and much broader than what we've been presented with in terms of, you know, Uber and issues around workers' rights and Airbnb. It's much, much broader than that. And do, do you think that sort of uh, because this feels very necessary for now, you know, we're in a very divided UK at the moment, and in some cases, very divided world in lots of places and, and people are increasingly isolated in in terms of the work that they do and uh, in terms of the way that sort of social media works. Do, do you feel that this just it just feels very necessary for now? Do you, can you sort of see a sharing economy as perhaps a way to to heal Britain's divides again? Well, I absolutely do. And the reason that I wrote my book, Generation Share, so three and a half years ago, I decided to um, work with and collaborate with a very dear friend and photographer with purpose, Sophie Scheinwald, to what I wanted to do was to bring the sharing economy to life for people, to demonstrate the social impact, how the sharing economy is saving lives and how this has the potential to build the future that we need, the sustainable future and to actually bring people together. And so Generation Share is very much about telling positive stories of the change makers who are already building the sharing economy. Because you only find things or people when you go looking for them. And I went to look for the, the brave, the positive change makers because I wanted to document how these change makers are saving and changing lives. And I wanted to evidence the power of sharing to change the world. And, you know, I intentionally sought out these positive stories, the stories of hope, because positivity is a really important characteristic of the sharing economy. It, It provides what I call it's a much needed antidote to this disease of cynicism and negativity that is destroying our world. We only have to look at what's happening right here, right now in the UK with all of these Brexit shenanigans to see that it's incredibly binary and divisive. And Positivity is basically the language of the sharing economy and it offers people this healing and hope and inspiration and it's much needed at a time when you know we see that totalitarianism and populism are winning votes. So I believe that what we have is a global crisis of responsible leadership. You look the world over, where are the responsible leaders? And that what we need to tackle our complex global problems are solution-focused, socially conscious, but above all, positive leaders, what I call change makers. And the people that I've documented in the book Generation Share are exactly that. They are change makers who are building a better world. They're doing all kinds of things to transform the society in which we live in, many of them against the odds. So many of these people have absolutely nothing, but they're creating incredible impact. Because then I believe what we're doing through this change making is elevating the status of good and positivity. And that's how we're going to change our our malfunctioning world. 
I am. Um, I I love the generation share is just uh, such a wonderful idea, and I wanted to ask you uh, an awful lot about it because um, it's it's dubbed as the Yellow Book of Hope, which I thought was just fantastic. But everything about it, you've made it. It's made completely sustainably, isn't it, as a book? So uh, from all environmentally friendly materials, um, and and you've been all around the world uh, talking about it. Is it twenty six? tour dates that you've done around around the world is that right yeah to date we've we've done sophie and i've done 27 launches and we literally have been to all kinds of places and we've been to right the way through europe um we've been in amsterdam we've been uh we've been to um paris um we've been to lisbon we were over in the u.s a month ago uh, but on both coasts and and what's really interesting is that wherever we've taken this book we've had an incredibly positive response. It's been dubbed the Big Yellow Book of Hope. As you rightly say, it's made 100% from waste materials, so it's entirely sustainable. And each copy educates a girl in the slums in Mumbai and plants a tree. It's made with organic ink. Every aspect of it is fair trade. And we worked with an incredible publisher called Policy Press, who were willing to do things differently because this is not how the publishing industry works at all. And we needed to find a publisher and they are, they call themselves publishers with purpose. They publish books about social change. They're obviously a really good fit for generation share. And that's been something that's been really important to us. But, you know, this, this book wouldn't, would not be happening were it not for some of these incredible change makers. And one of the amazing things that happened to me on this journey was Sophie and I ran a a crowdfunding campaign to raise the funds initially to go and travel and meet the various different people around the world, these change makers. And I received via LinkedIn a letter from a woman called Artie Nake. And this is what she said. She said, Dear Benita, I hope my voice will reach you. My name is Artie Nake. I'm a slum-based young girl change maker. I run Saki for Girls Education, a slum school for girls in Mumbai, India. We share knowledge and the chance of a positive future for girls. I would like to be part of your project because I am Generation Share. I strongly believe that because of you and your initiative, my slum-based girls' voices will reach globally. I hope for the best, Artie Nake. Now, if you consider there's a girl 5,000 miles away in living in the slums in Mumbai, she's 5,000 miles away from where I live in Brighton, and she heard about this project and believed that by telling these positive stories, that could actually make an impact on slum-based girls' lives. And really, the the point of this book and my passionate belief is that in order to change the world, we need to change the narrative. We need to start telling different stories, not focusing on the negative and the divisive and the cynicism, but we need to start focusing on these positive stories of change. Because I've interviewed about 200 people for this book, but for every person that I have interviewed, every change maker in different parts of the world, there are thousands and thousands more stories that I could have told. So it just goes to show that, you know, extraordinary impact. I mean, this girl was living in the slums in Mumbai. She looked around. She realized that, you know, her future was being married by the age of 11 or 12 or sold into prostitution. And she knew she had to find a way out, not just for herself, but for others. And so through making necklaces, earning nine pence a day, she saved up to educate herself. And now she's educating others. To date, she's educated over 800 girls in the slums in Mumbai. And Artie is one of, I mentioned, you know, 200 people in this book that are incredibly inspiring. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. 
Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And we'll be back with Benita in a minute, but first... Star of the Chris's franchise, John Burko, is stepping down as Speaker of the House this week. After ten years of shouting, Order! Like someone who doesn't understand how at Anandos you have to go to the till. Burko's time as the 157th Speaker in the House of Commons has seen him be praised as a hero for upholding parliamentary rules, which is, I mean, what he should be doing in his job. That's the whole point of it. While also condemned for being a bully, something that I just can't see him being a bully. I mean, it's not as if his entire job is just shouting at people, telling them to shut up. Oh, oh, I see. But what everyone can agree on is that Burko's distinctive yelling style very much made the role of Speaker his own. But what is the Speaker? What does the job actually entail, apart from telling Chancellor of the Duchy and Annabelle but hit by a truck, Michael Gove, to shut up all of the time? Which, yes, does make the role increasingly appealing. And how will they elect a new Speaker next week? Does it involve a competition where they will have to shout a coconut off its stand the quickest? Do they all go into a room and shout order into a spire and whoever's yell can be heard by the congregation below wins? Well, this week, I thought it'd be good to explain all, as the changing of the speaker really isn't a regular occurrence, unless you work at a stingy music venue and insist on buying cheap ones. The Speaker of the House of Commons is basically the chairperson who decides which members of the House get to speak when, gets to choose which amendments to a bill are debated, maintains order when all the MPs get all school playground on each other, and is allowed to punish members when they break the rules, like last year when leader of the SNP in the Commons and the ginger dead man, Ian Blackford, was ejected for refusing to sit down. It's very lucky he remembered his PE kit or he'd have been in extra trouble. They also have to remember the names and faces of over 600 MPs, which can't be easy, especially when some of them, like Brexit Secretary and that moment on Most Haunted when Yvette Fielding pretends she can hear something, but actually someone just farted, Stephen Barclay, who's factually impossible to remember even when looking directly at him. Even though Burko was elected as a Conservative MP by his constituency, more fool them, because the role of Speaker is strictly non-partisan and they can't take part in any debates or votes unless it's to break ties. And even then, thanks to Speaker Denison's rule, a constitutional convention since 1867, they should give their deciding vote towards leaving a bill in its existing form, as changes should have to require a majority. Basically, the whole role is that teacher who is ultimately boring at school, despite saying things in a funny way, but then when you left school you realised they were very necessary to stop your whole class becoming just a shit-flinging tea party of chimpanzees at the zoo. The Conservative Party have really hated Burko in recent years, trying to launch coups against him and have him replaced many a time during the Brexit discourse, mostly because he insisted on following rules and not letting them bring the same failed bill unchanged 600 times in front of Parliament and allowing amendments that have changed the Brexit timetable so that legislation can't be pushed through without scrutiny. For the Tories, he's been a party pooper extraordinaire, but we all know that had he let the party continue unpooped, everything would have been even more poopy as a result. But who will replace him, and will they pander to the government a tad more, or follow in Burko's order? Well, there are currently nine candidates for Speaker, because it turns out being non-partisan when no one likes the parties they're in is a pretty sought-after role. The candidates are veteran Labour MP and the Hills Have Nays and Eyes, Sir Lindsay Hoyle, who's favourite to win on account of him being Burko's senior deputy and knowing all the ropes already. Then there's Labour MP and Darren Aronofsky's mother of the house, Harriet Harman, who's the second favourite of the bookies, and she sees the role as being more about being the servant of Parliament, so maybe she'd just get everyone tea during the longer debates, but has to sleep in a cupboard behind her chair and clean up when everyone's gone. There's also Labour MP and what if Norman Bates was really dull, Chris Bryant, who's a former minister so would probably get cross a lot. There's Conservative MP and extra in Get Out, Dame Eleanor Lang, who said she wants to be a still small voice of calm, or that might be a misspelling, and is meant to be still small voice of clam, which sounds a lot better. Tory MP, Brexiteer and Hellbore, Sir Edward Lee, who doesn't want the much-needed refurbishments on the Palace of Westminster, so his time as Speaker would likely bring the House down, literally. Then the last four, who are so unlikely to get it I can't be bothered to write silly descriptions of them, are Labour's Dame Rosie Winterton, who's currently a Deputy Speaker, Conservative MP Shailish Vara, who said he wants to send a powerful message to every single child in this country, so I guess he'll interrupt MPs by shouting, Smoking is bad for you! or something like that. Conservative Sir Henry Bellingham, who wants to bring back traditional speaker's dress of a wig and gown, because nothing says order than looking like a mime sheep. And Labour's Meg Hillier, who complained all about the singing and shouting in the Commons, so don't invite her to karaoke or she'll cry. 
On November the 4th, a secret vote will take place in the Commons, chaired by Father of the House and Heap Show, Ken Clark, where each candidate will speak to MPs, and I guess if they can't, I mean, that's them eliminated immediately, as what's the point? That's the whole job. MPs will vote, and the winner has to have an absolute majority, otherwise I guess it'd get confusing if someone needed to make a deciding vote. If no one gets a majority, then they just get rid of any with less than 5% of the votes and redo until one candidate does. And then Ken Clark will put the question of the that insert name of winner here do take the chair of this house as speaker. And if that gets passed as a motion, they get dragged to the chair by fellow MPs because nothing is more funny than pretending the whole system is oppressive. Burko chairs his last PMQs this week, then Speaker 158.0 arrives next week, and they could bring servitude, a small clan voice, or maybe an old wig to the Commons. With nine possibles to choose from, we'll just have to see who MPs decide to, um, order. And now, back to Benita. I don't want to do any spoilers about the 200 changemakers because I want people to go out and, and read the book. Um, but you've you, you've spoken to people around the world and you've done these sort of global tour dates. Are there any differences you notice in maybe ways countries uh, approach it? Um, or, or is it just all about sort of local areas, understanding what they need and then tackling it in their, in their own ways? Well, it's a really good question because what I wanted to find out with this book and the big question that I ask at the beginning of this book are who are Generation Share? You know, are they young? Are they old? Are they living in urban areas, rural areas? Are they living in particular parts of the country? Is this about culture? Is it about religion? Is it about disability? Is it about gender? I really wanted to understand, you know, what what role does wealth play in all of this? And actually what's really interesting is that, you know, Generation Share is, is, is a mindset, it's a mindset that we can choose to adopt. And the world over, we have examples from all ages, all genders, uh, people living in urban environments, rural environments, uh, you know, people from different religions, different cultures. You know, sharing is pan-generational. And, you know, to share is to be human, ultimately. But, yes, there are some extraordinary stories. Um, I'll, I'll mention a couple of them because there are a few favourites, I have to say. I'm not really meant to have favourites, but unfortunately <laughs> that's, the way, that's the way it goes. But don't tell anyone, right? Um, but there's an amazing story of someone called Cohen van der Steeg. And Cohen van der Steeg um, woke up in an intensive care unit after following a horrific um, bike accident. And he had an acquired brain injury. And it was pretty much, you know, looked like he had no chance of a future. Um, But as he was starting to recuperate, um, you know, the doctors said, well, one of the things that would help his brain recuperate was to go for walks in the woods. And he had this, oh, be out in nature. And he thought to himself, well, you know, physically, I could help other people. I could walk someone's dog who's got a broken hip. But how do I find that person? And he he basically created this platform called We Helpen. And what We Helpen does is connects people who can offer help to people who need it, because his philosophy is, at some point in our lives, we all need help and we all have the ability to help others. And that's what this platform is all about. And we have an amazing story of, um, of, a, of, a, of a woman called Mrs. Koch, an elderly woman who was living alone. Her daughter had a daughter with special needs and couldn't live close to her mother. And there was a volunteer called Tinica who was very isolated. Her kids had grown up and she was feeling quite lonely and wanted to be valued and connected. And she started visiting Mrs. Koch and enabled Mrs. Koch to stay in her own home longer. And because Mrs. Koch then had company, her daughter felt her mother was much safer. And you see this is a kind of win-win situation for everybody involved. So there's all kinds of positive aspects of of sharing, Uh, you know, whether that's a community benefit, whether that's just sitting and sharing a smile and having a cup of tea with somebody, or whether that really is saving a life. Lots and lots of benefits. We've got stories. There's a, a woman in, in Greece called Dr. Olga, Olga Kasidou who set up a network of free clinics in abandoned spaces for people who could not afford access to health care because the Greek government in their wisdom about three years ago um, introduced a law that if you've been unemployed for over a year, you no longer had access to free health care. Go figure. And for this group of doctors, it's completely ridiculous. This group of doctors, they said, well, you know, as doctors, we have a moral responsibility to heal people who need to be healed. And that's what they did. But what was interesting was the fact that these became community spaces and they, you know, they brought food into these spaces. They set up community kitchens and clothes. You know, they brought, had clothing drives. And so actually people were starting to connect with a wider community. And obviously lots of refugees who, you know, had been fleeing persecution 
um, were actually able to not only get medical attention, but they were also able to find and connect with other people in their community. So there's so many different examples. Uh, you know, there's an example of something called the Benches Collective. And literally, this is an idea that you put a bench outside your home or, uh, you know, in a park, in a public space. And this idea that people can come and gather around and, you know, some of them are clothes swaps or, you know, just come and have a cup of coffee, a conversation. But this idea of using public space to bring people together and connect people in communities. That's really what it's all about. That's all very inspiring. And, and I mean, just hearing about other people doing things like that immediately makes me think, oh, I should really do something. <laughs> and does that, do, you, do you find that it has that effect on people? Definitely. And one of the things that we've been finding from doing these, uh, these this world tour for Generation Share is that it inspires people to do something. And I guess that's the point, really. It's like we can all do something. We all have this infinite capacity to share. It's something that everybody can do. Everybody comes into this world with skills, with gifts, with talents. There's something that everybody can contribute. And that's what's, that's what's brilliant about sharing. It's a great leveler. Everybody can do it. You know, this is not some kind of meritocracy. Everybody can share. And, you know, it's, it's very much, even if it's as simple as when you get up, you know, smiling at somebody. You know, sharing a smile, sharing a cup of tea, simple things actually go a really long way and make a big difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It's, it's, it's very interesting. Because, uh, I'm currently, um, as I go on about far too much on this podcast, I'm currently touring a, a children's show about politics. And that's one of the messages we give children is that, you know, if you that sort of corny phrase of be the change you want to see. But we say that to children. We say, you know, if you want to make if, if you want a happier world, then you start by smiling at people and being positive. And, and I, we don't think to say it to adults you know, anywhere near as much. Well, it's very true. And actually, in the book, we've got a laughter sharer, um, Natasha Wood, who's based up in Nottingham. She's absolutely hilarious. And what she does is she's all about sharing laughter. You know, you're a comedian, a political comedian, and, and obviously that's something that strikes a chord with you. But that's what Natasha does. And she believes, you know, laughter, it's proven, is, is we all, with the old adage, laughter is the best medicine. And actually, particularly when we're in a time of political chaos, actually being able to see the humorous side of things, but also the benefits of laughter, looking at the positives in the world, looking at the funny side of things, being able to see humor, even in tragedy, is incredibly important. It's what it's what helps people to survive. It's what gives them hope. And it's really what will help us to build this caring, sharing economy. Well, you've immediately made me feel like I've had a more worthwhile day. So that's great. I'm glad I spoke to you. Um, um, so um, uh, what, do, what do you want to happen next to grow the sharing economy? Um, obviously, you're going around spreading the word and, and, and you've got your wonderful book. But what do, what do you kind of hope to see in, in society or what do the next steps need to be to kind of increase this happening? Well, I think it really is about it, it, it's about thinking about when you get up on a morning, what can you share? really taking it down to that, you know, what can I do? What can I contribute? How can I share? There are so many different ways in which people can do this now. You know, there's an app, for example, called Olio, where you can share food that you don't need, that you might have in your fridge that, you, you know, is perfectly good food, but, you know, you're not going to eat it. You can share that with someone through this app. It's a free download, really easy to do. You know, they're tackling food waste. There are all kinds of platforms. There's a fantastic platform called Bean. Uh, which is crowdfunding for um, homeless people, for training and employment. So I'm saying there's so many different ways in which we can share. I think it's about getting involved. I really do urge people to buy the book because it's made from waste. Every copy educates a girl in the slums in Mumbai and plants a tree. We want, we want this book to go viral. We want to, you know, this book is traveling the world. We're creating a buzz. We're creating a community. We've got a Facebook page. Get involved. People start sharing their different uh, sharing projects that are in their communities. I was out in a community who were talking about they'd set up a group called um, I Need a Whisk. Go figure. Um, you know, there are all <laughs> kinds of ways in which people can share. I mentioned people, you know, sharing dogs uh, through Borrow My Doggy. You know, there are all kinds of ways in which we can do this. And and it's just it's just so much more fun. Think about it. You know, when I when I started this work in the sharing economy 10 years ago, I made a pledge to myself that I wouldn't buy new things. And so everything that I I have is it's been loved by someone else. It's new to me. And and I love that. I love the stories behind, you know, when I go to clothes swaps with friends, you know, the stories behind the clothes. And, you know, it, it just makes life so much more interesting. It's a much better experience. It makes us better connected. And I think in a world where there is so much chaos, 
we have the opportunity as individuals to make a difference. Everybody can be part of this. You know, the sharing economy is not any kind of exclusive club. In fact, the opposite. It's incredibly inclusive. So I think the change that I would like to see are those businesses that are um, taking, you know, advantage of the sharing economy in financial respects, actually thinking about what's the social impact that they can create. That's the sharing economy that I want to see. And for individuals, it's, you know, there are all kinds of things happening. You know, find about, out about your local clothes swap. You know, share food through these different apps that I've mentioned. Uh, you can help, you know, uh, homeless people through, you know, apps like uh, like Beam. There are all kinds of ways in which you can do this. I run a, a charity called The People Who Share. We are all about helping to unleash everyone's sharing potential. And we're all about social impact. We're about creating huge public benefit to enable people to be able to access the goods that they need. Uh, for you know for the lives that they need to lead um, we can you know we have the potential to end world hunger through food sharing we have a third of food globally is wasted 1.3 billion tons of food is wasted every single year worldwide and you just think if that food is diverted to people who need it it's perfectly good food that gets wasted there's nothing wrong with that food it's good quality food and it just gets thrown away for all kinds of spurious reasons and that's what we need to start doing. We need to, you know, we need to, all the surplus that we have in the world can help us build this sustainable, happy, healthy economy. And, and, and also, as you mentioned several times, so that it's so easy to do that the fact that you can get apps that do it, um, especially sort of people of a certain age or people of a certain sort of technological ability, that's so, it's a few thumb clicks <laughs> to, to do these things, which uh, makes it sound so accessible um, and so easy to get on board with. Um, I wanted to, to just ask as, as a last question, which uh, is something that I ask all these guests, uh, all the guests that we have on this show um, is apart from yourself and Generation Share and the people who share all of which listeners uh, need to check out and buy um, who else would you recommend that listeners look up on the subject of sharing economy who do you go to for information who are the who are the people that you like to read uh, the, the uh, views of on sort of or even on alternative progressive ways what do you what who do you go to there's an absolutely brilliant um, magazine online magazine called shareable if you haven't discovered it yet it's shareable.net and they have all kinds of incredible, inspiring stories. They have po uh, podcasts. They look at the whole kind of world of sharing. They've got brilliant resources, everything from, you know, how to run a potluck dinner um, through to, you know, how to do a clothes swap, all kinds of stuff. And they also have reports. Um, I mentioned the podcast. So shareable.net is a really phenomenal resource. And I would absolutely highly recommend that. Thanks very much to Benita for having time to chat. Um, you can find her on Twitter at Benita Matowska. That's B-E-N-I-T-A-M-A-T-O-F-S-K-A. And her website is BenitaMatowska.com. The People Who Share are on Twitter at People Who Share. And the website is PeopleWhoShare.com. And the Generation Share book by Benita and also Sophie Scheinwald is available in loads of places, uh, but mainly Policy Press. And I'll pop all the links in the pod blurb. Um, the book also has its own Facebook, YouTube and Instagram channel too. So check all those out. Thank you loads to Charlie who emailed to recommend that I get in touch with Benita uh, several months ago so thank you very much for that, it's much appreciated who else shall I interview what subject shall I talk to someone about shall I just do a Ouija board and see how many times it tells me nothing or worse conjures up the ghost of Margaret Thatcher and then I have to spend hours arguing about how if you don't follow the crowd and you let the crowd follow you all that will happen is loads of people will be really angry that I've lost them instead of finding the emergency fire meeting point Anyway, uh, let me know who I should actually talk to via the contact page on partlypoliticalbroadcast.co.uk, the at Parpolbro Twitter account, the Partly Political Broadcast Facebook group, or email me at partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com. And that's all for this year's Halloween Partly Poltergeist broadcast. And thank you for listening. Uh, whether you were lucky enough to be buried with a smartphone inside your coffin, or you're just hearing this quietly played as you sleep, but can't work out where it's coming from. If you've dead enjoyed the show, then please do review it, donate some blood to the Kofi or Patreon sites, and do tell others about it, or maybe just leave a creepy message that if they hear in reverse while standing in a salt pentagram, gives a heartwarming recommendation to subscribe. Thanks to Acast, I mean, um, Acast, for hosting the show, my brother the Last Skeptic, uh, Skeleton, for all the concerning noises, and to Cat Day, um, Knight, for typing up the linear liner notes. This will be back next week when it'll have been decided to do an election on Christmas Day, as everyone's around, aren't they? And all the perder laws will mean the Queen's speech would just be her singing James Brown's funky Christmas. 
farewell and good night. <laughs> this week's show is sponsored by the Ultimate Winter Voting Kit. Election in December, grab one of these kits, including a head torch for dark early voting, a furry pen so you can keep your fingers warm and snug as you make sure they don't change your vote, Deerstalker tinfoil hat to protect you from any mind-changing waves as you walk to the polling station, and a thermal milkshake shield to keep you cosy as you repel any income daring... To keep you cosy as you repel any incoming dairy products while trying to tell certain people they can't vote because their eyebrows aren't British enough. The ultimate winter voting kit, so even your 90-year-old self can still keep things shit for the young'uns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.